the one probably the primary thing that influenced the lyrics in the song was the fact that we Chester and I were so mad at Don, our producer, for sending us back to the drawing board on those lyrics over and over. Chester was the one who'd written "I'm one step closer to the edge and I'm about to break" because he was talking to Don. He was so sick of rewrites. The history of alternative podcast: a historic look back at everything alternative. Throughout alternative history, you can point to a handful of albums that have created seismic change throughout the music industry. Nevermind was one. OK Computer, sure. But in 2000, a California band turned the world upside down with an album that mixed metal, alternative, electronic, rap, hip hop, all of these sounds into something completely brand new. I mean, think about that for a second. Music had existed for at least 75 years before them. And somehow this band, on their very first shot, created something completely different than anything before it. The album, of course, was Hybrid Theory, the band, Linkin Park. This is the History of Alternative Podcast. I'm John Manley. That's Deep State actor James Van Osdell. And the show is sponsored today, this week, by Wintrust. Go to Wintrust.com for information and locations. And here we are, 20 years after Hybrid Theory first came out, which is crazy. I feel very old about this. Joining us this week is Linkin Park co-founder, vocalist, multi-instrumentalist, and video game aficionado, I've learned this today, Mike Shinoda, <laughs> as well as longtime bassist Phoenix. What's up, guys? What's happening? Thank How's you for uh, taking the time with us. We appreciate it. So this is the 20th anniversary release of Hybrid Theory. Um, I mean, you guys put a lot of work into this. I got the packaging today. There is so much going on with this reissue. How did it feel going back into all those songs? Like, What emotions came out through that? I'd say, like, when I first started, um, when we first started talking about it, I was a little bit skeptical, um, just because I feel like so much has already been said and done about hybrid theory that it was, the, you know, my thought was, well, what, what are we going to do that makes this project this project like worthwhile for fans to check out. And, and the more we, the more we uncovered, the more pictures we found, the more demos we pulled out, like it, the better it got. I mean, it was just like, it, it became obvious at a certain point that um, it was something the fans were going to love and that we were having a blast, like, you know, looking at the pictures and, and talking about the old stories. So it, you know, this, the nostalgia of it won me over. So it seems crazy that we're talking about this album 20 years later. Clearly, we're not 20 years older than we were when the album came out. It sounds like madness. Well, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, because I, I'm barely 29. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is an amazing story. The album debuted at number 16. It was the best-selling album of 2001, and has gone on to sell over 10 million copies to date. Going into the album's release before it came out, what were your expectations, or did you have an idea at that point that you had something. I, I think. Uh, I mean, I remember sure us I having conversations. Yeah, I remember having, us having conversations about the record even the week before it came out, or the week that it was coming out, and us doing our own sales predictions and and projections as to what it might may or may not do. And um, I think the high the high number guess was around ten thousand in the first week, and that was Chester. And all of us were just like, dude do not get your hopes up. Like all of us were like, it'd be awesome if it did 5,000 units. Cause you know, we're this brand new band and we had some radio play, but have no idea what, what to expect. And I, I remember like 
I remember being concerned just that in that first week it could come out and the guys, namely like Chester, who's saying, I think it's going to do 10,000. If it comes out and does 1,000 units, just having him be like so devastated and bummed, almost like deflated <laughs> and demoralized by that. In the first week it came out, I think it did 47 or 49,000 units. And all of us were, were kind of like, oh my God, what, what just happened? Um, and, and like you said, came out, I think 16. And then it just stayed. It, I don't think that, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but hybrid theory never got to number one. It got to number two at its peak chart position, but it was in yeah. like the top 10, it felt like, for two years. It, was, it wasn't in it for the, uh, like the short blast on yeah. the chart. It stayed there. I think it was still on the charts when we were like well into Meteora. Like when we were yeah, making was, Meteora. It was this marathoner. And so it's obviously the, uh, we, we had no way of kind of anticipating that. I read this today. It is the only uh, diamond certified rock album of the 21st century. That's it. You guys broke rock music. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they just need to make them diamond award. Like they just need to lower the number so that more people can have diamonds. Right. Or turn it to stone. I was like, I was like, cause like when you guys were talking about this, I pulled up the Wikipedia page. I'm like, I don't, I can't think of the last time I looked on the Wikipedia page for hybrid theory. And it, I know that we got the diamond award because it got, it sold over 10 million in the U S but I was like, yeah, but when it was selling, I remember that our, our manager at the time was, was very, um, uh, he was adamant about us playing outside the U.S. because he said, and he was right, that the fan bases elsewhere in the world um, would be generally more loyal over, long, over time than the U.S. fan base. So, for example, like as your career waned after certain you know at a certain point you could go overseas and still play for you know bigger bigger crowds and still make money and, and have a career for longer so we we listened to him and and as the album was you know as things were moving along we we shockingly the sales of like things in the u.s started to i should say the other way the sales of 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 albums outside the u.s started to equal the number inside the US, which was the crazy, that didn't really happen for people. Um, and the number right now on Wikipedia, I mean, for whatever it's worth, and Wikipedia is no, you know, it's not necessarily that correct, but I know that it's in, in, the, in the realm of 27 million copies worldwide. That is an astronomically crazy number. I don't even know how you guys put that in context in your own minds. <laughs> That's something you made, sold that many units, that is, we, I mean, that's just, and that's one album, you know, and the guy, and the, and we get the, and those numbers always come from the label. Like, I don't, we have no way of telling how many, cause there's, you know, the band's popular in Brazil and China and Russia and we're selling, you know, it sells copies in like every country. So, I mean, how would we know? It's like when they told us that it was the most popular album on the planet that year, we were, we were like, we thought it was like a, um, like a, euphemism or something like a like an exaggeration and they were like no i they, they could see like our reactions weren't surprised enough and they're like you guys i mean literally <laughs> there is no bigger album and we were like I, I mean it's still to this day doesn't make any sense to me so we're going to get into the tracking of this album but i want to start a little bit before hybrid theory gets made um 
you know, we lost Chester Bennington over three years ago. His presence is still so large. Um, when you were putting this band together and you meet Chester and you hear this guy, let it rip. Like, did you know within like the first bar that you're like, yep, this is the dude or what were your first impressions of him joining the band? I remember it being, well, let me give you context. So before that I started, um, when I first started making music that was, um, like I started like buying music gear to record with most of the stuff I recorded with people with my friends was they were joke songs. Like they were all like, think like weird Al Yankovic or something like that. Like it's, it's all like goofy stuff. We'd, we'd imitate Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. We'd imitate Wu Tang. Like we did all these goofy things. And my friend Mark and I started to make a couple songs that were serious and they were, that was zero. That was the band's original incarnation was me and Mark. And then we sent a demo out to some, um, like on the back of a CD, there's this, there's this like address and, and phone number for this A&R guy. We sent it to him. And long story short, he met with us. He loved it. And he met with us and told us we need to start a band. And so we were like, okay, well, like, we called our friends that we knew that we'd already either played with or, or knew could be a good fit. Um, you know, Brad, Mark, Mark, Brad was Mark's next door neighbor. Dave, um, Phoenix and, and Brad uh, were roommates in college. Joe was my friend at college and Rob Borden was in a, had been in a band with Mark and Brad before. Um, so that was the first lineup. And then um, we parted ways with Mark, mostly because Mark was, he was really, you know, a good writer and he loved like the, mu you know, he loved music. He just wasn't a singer. Like he would, he would get, we were, I was actually concerned he would physically get like a like a ulcer or something from his anxiety of being on stage and doing certain things that were associated with being a, in a band um he wasn't made for that and in fact he ended up being a very successful music manager so that's great um he he left and then we um found chester through a mutual friend while we were looking for singers we had lined up like i don't know like let's call it like 10 tryouts we just we had found a bunch of people and we told them yeah let's let's you know we're gonna we're gonna just have tryouts at our rehearsal space and when chester came in and sang i remember thinking like wow this guy is so good it struck me how good he was um but it wasn't he also didn't sing then the way he sang on the on hybrid theory like he still sounded a lot like other people at that point to me, like in particular, like Stone Temple Pilots, Scott Weiland, or some other bands, uh, you know, there were moments when he sounded like Lane Staley and moments when he sounded like, like Scott and, and even moments when he sounded like Dave Kahn from Depeche Mode. Um, just depending on how he would use his voice, he was just so versatile. Um, so that to me was like, that's weird though. You know, do we want that kind of singer? Do we want a guy that sounds like STP? Um, so we finished up all our tryouts, like all of the other people. In fact, the big, the, the, the story that Chester loved to tell is that he left, he walked out of the room and the guy right after basically was like, shook his head and like walked, like walked away from his try. He said like, if those guys don't, he said to Chester, if those guys don't hire you, they're fucking stupid. <laughs> That's great. So the Super Deluxe 20th anniversary set, it, I, I can't imagine there's anything left. It spans five CDs, three LPs. There's a cassette in there, a coffee table book. 
there's something in there for every level of Lincoln Park fan. Time being what it is, uh, we want to stick to the core with the, the hybrid theory that was presented to the world 20 years ago. Can we do a quick track by track through the album? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's, let's start at the beginning. Opening track, Paper Cut. This was one of Chester's favorites, wasn't it? Paper Cut was one of all of our favorites, actually. Everybody's yeah. yeah. And so this was, a, this was the track that I think all of us actually wanted to be our first single. Um, you know, everybody, everyone in the band was just thinking this was a great representation of what the album is as a whole. It's a great representation of the different elements of, and styles of music that we wanted to fuse together and present together on the record. This is the, this is the calling card. And the label was like, nope. One step closer is the first single. Um, so we, I think, a handful of us were kind of not very excited about that from the get-go. Um, but all that just to say, I think that's the reason why it's the first track on the album. And uh, we thought this was like the track to go with. Yeah. It was funny because that came back later. I mean, I think the big, the big fight was in second sing after, after One Step Closer. We were like, okay, it's Paper Cut's the next for sure the next single and Mike Ritberg from Warner came back and he was like, okay, guys, listen, like, I hear you. I know that I know the reason why you think that. Um, and I'm telling you that crawling actually has like the, the radio stations are actually already playing it and asking for it as a single, which is totally unusual. And so if they ask to play a song, like you're going to do it. But he, he knew everybody knew that like one of the reasons why we love paper cut so much was that it, it, it packed the whole DNA of hybrid theory into one song. It, like even just off the jump, like as soon as it starts, it's that hip hop bounce. And then when the guitars come in, you've got that sound over top of what we used to be called jungle. Uh, it was like an electronic subgenre called jungle or drum and bass. And so you've got those three things within 30 seconds. And it was really like, you know, it was me rapping and then Chester rapping the choruses with me. And then we mixed him in the front because it was so unusual for us to be able, like it was the only song that we had him really rapping a part. Um, and then the big melodic part at the end. It's certainly one of those killer first songs off an album, which, you know, in 2020, I feel like nobody, I don't, well, I shouldn't say that nobody thinks about these things anymore, but that's certainly one of those unique things where back in the days when, albums really matter that was like whoa what is happening here like it really sets the stage perfectly for what was to come and of course what's to come right out of paper cut is the debut single one step closer i remember getting this song uh, on a burned cd delivered to me while i was djing at a club and through the loudspeakers i think i was playing like some dance tune by jay-z or something like that and then in the preview i was listening to one step closer and i was like I want to put this on right now, but this is the place for it. But holy shit, like, what is, what is this? When you made that song, I mean, I guess it was, you didn't think it would be your first single, but like, once you heard it on the radio, did you know, like, oh, I think we just made it? I was I think, confident about the song as soon as we had the bridge. Like, interesting. the bridge, that was our attempt to do, like, there a lot of my, the bands that I really loved at the time around that like five to 10 year span. Um, I guess I should say five year span because five years before it, but like Rage Against the Machine, 
like killing in the name of like you you know when you get to that br that bridge it's like so few bits so i feel like bridges are infamously hard to get right you got to have like a really special idea for it and when we got to that bridge i remember sitting and rewriting and rewriting and we were actually one of the one of the like the, the one probably the primary thing that influenced the lyrics in the song is the fact that we chester and i were so mad at don our producer for sending us back to the drawing board on those lyrics over and over. Chester was the one who'd written, I'm one step closer to the edge and I'm about to break because he was talking to Don. He was so sick of rewrites. <laughs> and the rest of it, you know, wasn't necessarily just about that, but like that was a, that was the thing. And then, so when we got to the bridge, we, we, he did, we were doing the rewrite thing a few times and we would do something and we didn't like it. And then we'd do a new thing and we'd like it and we play for Don and Don wouldn't like it. And then, we he he had said something about shut up when i'm talking to you or shut up some version of shut up something and it was a lot much longer thought and i had said why don't we just do shut up like why don't you just scream shut up and he's like oh that'll be so sick and i don't we didn't really like completely formulate the thing like what it was going to be but we went in the studio and we told don we've got the bridge and he goes tell me what it is and we we're like no 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 you can't like we can't explain it or, or like show it to you on paper like you have to hear it and he's like okay and so he puts up the track and chester goes in there and does it like the first take sounded like the record and don or everybody just like like lost it it was it was immediately like the our favorite thing that we had done you know like i mean maybe that's like exaggeration but we were very very excited that we knew the moment that happened that we had cracked the code on this song and then it was now like super, super special. All right. In our fleeting time left, we're going to power through the rest of the album. We're going like, <laughs> to do first, first impressions of everything um, with you. This is a, one of a kajillion great examples of Chester and Mike playing off one another. Go. I feel like that one, Dave, what do you, what do you think of when you think with you? I just think that, that was actually a song that we started a lot of sets with playing live. Mm. That was a, uh, a fun opener. Yeah. That's just true. the way it comes in and the way that that song hits was a, I feel like it was very of the moment too, with like the Ibanez, like seven string. Yeah. And like a five string bass and seven string yeah. guitar and just really low, very low. Guttural. Okay, points of, points of authority. This one was almost eclipsed by the reanimation version, but this is another standout. <laughs> that one was originally built around. So first of all, the first thing I do in the song, that, uh, 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 that, was, in, that was inspired by um, The Roots, Philadelphia Half-Life. Like Black Thought did a lot of that. Like well, Not just him, but those guys um, did a lot of that, like vocalizing um, on their stuff at that time. And I just thought that sounded so cool. Um, but we had that, the, you know, we had the song over... A different riff, which kind of it was boring. Like it wasn't a good. It wasn't good. <laughs> it wasn't good. And and at one point, Brad was like, "Oh, let you know, you should rewrite it. Like rewrite the riff." And I was like, "You know what? Give me. Let me treat it. Let me do. I have a different idea. Let me treat it like a sample, and I'll pretend. I'll like cut it up as if it was a sample I put on my MPC. And then it became that. Then what I made was the thing that you hear now. And we were like, "Oh, that's so like so different." um and that that was the moment that that song like for me was like oh we gotta have this on the album okay the previously mentioned grammy winning crawling the grammy was just about chester 
right? Like I didn't know that at the time because it was, we won for best rock performance. And I thought that meant like best, I thought that meant best rock song. But then they, I realized when we were at the Grammys that they have a best rock song as well. And I was like, so what's performance? And it's like, oh, the, you know, the performance on record, like the thing, the way you played the song. And I went, oh, it's all Chester then. Like it's, this is a Grammy for Chester singing because the song, if you hear it, like I feel like anybody, any good rock band could play that song. Like, yeah, we made really unique sounds. So some of the engineering and production and sound design was very specific to the song. And of course, like there's the chords and choosing the right, you know, chords and tempo, blah, blah, blah. But if anyone else sings this song, it's never even a B minus version of itself. Like he is, his voice is, is the whole thing. It does take a lot of, it takes a lot of discipline to play those whole notes, but. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, boom, boom. boom. (laughs) That's my Uh, Grammy, Grammy award-winning performance. Hey, it still counts. It still counts. Man, can you feel the restraint in the bass player's (laughs) performance? (laughs) Uh, The sick part is I remember being in a band at that point in time and we tried to cover it and we did not have a Chester, so we were not in contention for any, for any Grammys oh. in, like, the local Grammy. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we got to keep going. Moving on. We're going into Runaway. First impressions of that tune. Uh, Runaway was, and you could actually even hear it on the, um, one of the tracks on the, from the box set, but that was an old song called Stick and Move that got reworked. And do you remember how how bit, how much fans loved Stick and Move when we used to play it at like the whiskey and stuff? I I might still like Stick and Move better. I don't. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. Jury might be out on that. But um. But yeah, Stick and Move was like for our original live shows, circa 1990. Who knows in LA at like the Roxy or the Whiskey. Stick and Move, I think, was our closer, and that was yeah. a very like upbeat kind of crowd participation song and then yeah if you want to hear the original version it's on hybrid theory 20 it's it's there yeah we'll be unpacking that that one has that one has mark singing though right yeah 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 interesting all right let's talk about by myself by myself was an exercise in making like the nastiest sounding thing we could think of like we just want every single sound we wanted the the verses to be extra quiet so that everything else sounded like like the um, Star Wars Star Destroyer trash compactor. Like it was just like everything needed to sound like like this industrial garbage crushing metal. And, and it, 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 I remember even Joe loved the Chester screams and the bridge of that so much that he made a, um, an original vinyl that he could scratch so that he was scratching like original material and on his record he put he took all of chester's screams actually uh, he he we did it we made his record together but he he was the one who was like dude we got to take those screams i love those screens i want to scratch them so bad and he put them on his vinyl all right moving on we are going into in the end your highest charting single one billion youtube views uh you want a vma off of it back when vmas matter in my opinion, this is like the definitive 
rap rock song. It's like perfectly balanced. It doesn't lean too far in any direction. I, I kind of equate it to like listening to like beat it or satisfaction. It's just like, this is exactly how you're supposed to do it. And the thing that blows me away, and please tell me if this is true. I read this, that Chester didn't like it at first. Is that true? He, so you, one thing to remember about the way Chester described, I mean, Dave, you can give your version of this, but he, he, he was always an entertainer, even when he was doing an interview. Okay. So like he, he said all kinds of versions of, I, I, <laughs> I liked it as a song, but I didn't like it as a single. I never thought it would be a single. And then in other interviews, he said, I always hated that song. And then other interviews, he said he loved, he liked it, but you know. So I, I don't know what the I was never one hundred percent clear on what actually he felt about it, but I do know that when it was chosen as a single, we, I know Brad and I were saying, of course, like this is the biggest. We've always thought this is the biggest song on the record, and that's the record everybody knew that that was going to be the thing to like to the to the extent that they even timed out um the 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 singles singles uh, in Europe they blow through singles faster than in the US right so it was it was so so understood inside the label that this was going to be the big single that they added a third single in the UK they did they did one step closer and crawling together. And then they went with paper cut while the U S was finishing crawling in order to realign and converge on in the end as a worldwide single after that. So they, the whole company was in sync that this was going to be the one. And yeah, he, when he, then they chose it when they started working out that way, I think he was kind of like, it was a big, a bit of an eye roll. Like, yeah, of course, like whatever. I don't remember him ever saying no, because he loved having it. He loved it enough to like really want it on the record. Do you know what I mean? Right. So we have one minute left with you. Uh, is, there a way, <laughs> is there a way to consolidate we a place for my head? We can go over a little bit. We can go over. We got to get through these. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's just do rapid fire. Let's start with the place for my head. Show that closer. A, yeah. Crowd favorite. Always a good mosh pit song. Forgotten. Originally, uh, a place for my head was originally Esaul, Ryan, uh, and Forgotten was originally Rhinestone, and both of those demos are on Hybrid Theory Twenty, and you can hear the original version. Uh, we talked about show closer. How about show opener? Cure for the itch. <laughs> we this was like I think this was a a little bit of a nod to Metallica, where at that position on their albums they always had just an instrumental track. At least when Brad and I talked about it, that was our thinking. Like, well, <laughs> I forgot about that. Nice, man. Yeah. Good memory on that. Yeah. So we kind of took a, a node or a, a node, a note, and a nod, a nod and a, and a note, a node to that. And then <laughs> on an album that's filled with potential singles, pushing me away, I mean, to my ears, could have been a single, highly melodic song. I felt like pushing me away was us trying to make another, like maybe we need one more song like Crawling. Like, you know, not knowing that crawling would be a huge song. We were just, all we were doing, I mean, this t speaks to the whole process of making the whole album. We were just kids working in an apartment. Like it wasn't, we weren't thinking of like worldwide success. We were like, okay, well, what do we have? What don't we have? We we're just trying to do our best. And we felt like without pushing me away, we felt like we needed another song that was melodic. 
And so we made that one. And I'm not, I think that's the one where our influences from like the Pesh mode are the most obvious. Well, we thank you for plowing through the track listing of, <laughs> of hybrid theory. I, I want to get you out on one last question, though, because this has been – I've been dying to ask this this whole time. So the influence of hybrid theory and, like, the mainstreaming of new metal that you guys get lumped in with, like, the red caps and the wallet chain crowd, um, I think that's lazy on society's part because you guys weren't the aggressive, overly, for lack of a better term – like overly broy band, like there is so much depth to your music and your lyrics. Did that bother you in the middle of all of it happening? And does it bother you today? I think, I think in the middle of it, it definitely bothered me. Um, and I think it does not bother me at all today. I think now if you were to think of us as a new metal band, then you're, not very like that's more just you saying like you're not very in touch with musical genres or or what, whatever whatever that is back then though i i think we were constantly fighting a fight against being pigeonholed into that sure. especially when you're new and you don't have a ton of stuff out everybody wants to understand it right away make a snap judgment file it somewhere and then like be done with it almost like put a category on it and then just that's why i like it or that's why i don't like it and then move on and so when that's your work, you know, when, when you're the six of us, you know, that, that feels, that felt pretty crappy. So everything for us felt like this constant fight of like, no, that's not what we are. Even if you were able to kind of say, even if John or James was able to kind of nail it perfectly, I would still be like, that's wrong because of this, this, and this, like, I'm not, we're not just that, you know? So, I think yeah, I think that was built in though from our from when we were trying to get signed and stuff like that because we were that was part of what distinguished us from bands that were coming up at the same time or were getting signed at the same time like they they a lot of it I always call it frat rock like sure. it was like just big drunken bros like slamming into each other and and that was it's not that that didn't exist at the shows it's that it was rounded out by the other half, right? The introspective half, the thoughtful half. I mean, it's, you know, obviously still a 20, 20, 21 year olds version of that. Like not as, you know, not as grown up, but it was, it was a part of who we are. And it was even more so, I think that blossomed later in records that came after. Phoenix, Mike Shinoda, the Lincoln Park 20 set is it's an incredible collection. Uh, also, as all of us have gained weight over quarantine and during the pandemic, it's a fine workout tool. Just it really is. <laughs> I feel like I've shed pounds just carrying it to my turntable. Uh, thank you for doing what you do. Uh, this album, it's amazing how resonant it still is two decades later. We appreciate your time this week. Thank you. Thank you. My, my vote was always to include dumbbells with a box set. <laughs> but I think the shipping costs got too expensive. At that That's point, so We just <laughs> kept it to five vinyls and whatever else is in there <laughs> kept the, kept the box at a, a manageable 15 pounds the history of alternative podcast is recorded at the 101 wkqx studios in chicago subscribe on apple google or wherever you get your podcast don't do drugs stay in school 